I want to make a statement because I know a lot of people are thinking right now that they're never going to figure this out. This is just building blocks so that you know this sort of thing exists. Checking for validity in this manner is probably something you keep in your textbook and pull it out as a reference when you need to do it. Yeah, that's right. right. Is yep. that true? That, that's right. Okay. Now, people want to know, but we want to know if you're going to prove that the Bible's true and things like that. Yeah. Uh, somebody asked me that. Yep. Well, Eric and I were talking about that today. That's going to be 80% of the class. That's right. Yep. When we get done with the logic part, we're going to start with building an apologetic arguments for the existence of God. Yep. Right? Yep. And then how do we know the Bible's true without using circular reasoning? That's right. Yep. We're going to build on that. And it's going to be really interesting. And the fourth week when you get to in, uh, informal fallacies, that is just downright fun. Yeah. <laughs> because people do informal fallacies all the time. And if you can recognize them, then you can make people look stupid. Now, wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guarantee you that was yeah. fun. And next week's, the version of the type of logic we're talking about next week a lot easier. is way easier. And I just use that. In fact, I was telling Eric yep. about that. I take these things, convert them into the other form, yeah. and then deal with the other form because it's a lot easier. That's right. So don't give up. This is... Yeah. It's only going to get more exciting every week. Yeah, that's right. We didn't want to shortchange you, though, so we wanted to do categorical syllogism. Hey, one item again. Let me just, before Bob and I are going to talk, give you some examples from the scriptures, let me make another, make sure I make this distinction clear. When we're doing these syllogisms, remember, again, we're checking for validity, not soundness. Remember, we discussed that night one, but let me make the distinction again. We're checking merely for what's called the formal validity of the syllogism, meaning we're looking at the way the argument is structured, not necessarily whether it's true, okay? Because if it is invalid, then we don't even have to worry about it being true because the argument doesn't work, okay? So again, that gentleman asked that question, it's a good question because, again, if the, the syllogism is valid and both of the premises are true, the conclusion must necessarily be true, Okay, so make that distinction between validity is what we're checking for. That's all we're concerned with. We're not concerned with truth. So when you're looking at the propositions, don't say to yourself, well, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if I agree with that or not. You don't care. You're just checking to say, is this a universal affirmative, universal negative, whatever it is. And you're just checking for validity. That's all you care about. Now, later, we're going to worry about whether something's true or not. And that's where we get into the more of the apology. That's the fun stuff. We're just doing our homework now. So with that, let's give you an example from the scriptures, okay? What I'm going to do is I'm going to have homework there on the slides, and I'm going to put up the answers later this week, and you guys can check them and see how you're doing. And just keep working through the seven rules. Just keep working through them, okay? So anyway, let's talk about one that's in the scriptures itself. And by the way, it's difficult sometimes to see these in the scriptures. That's also a skill. But let me put up Galatians 3.10. And Paul wrote this to the Galatians And he said this, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Okay. now what we're going to do is show you a categorical syllogism from this text. And what I want to show you that right away where you see it underlined, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. That's actually our major premise, okay? And this is how I would write it. Everyone who does not abide by the law, that is our whole, that's a big subject, right, is cursed. All right, now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually show you the conclusion, and here is the conclusion, and then I'm going to see if you can supply the second premise, okay? 
Here's the conclusion. It's all humans are cursed. So in other words, one of the conclusions we can derive from this text is that all humans are cursed, right? Now, looking at the first premise and looking at the conclusion, there's something that's implied, but it's not necessarily stated, okay? And does anybody have an idea what it would be? And this, by the way, is called an enthymeme. It's something that's implied, but it's not explicitly written. The law applies to all humans? Oh, wow. All humans are very close, are those who cannot abide by the law. Yes, you're on the right track, you guys. So let's follow the logic here. Everyone who does not abide by the law is cursed. All humans are those who cannot abide by the law. All humans are cursed. Okay? Now, what does that mean for us, Bob? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had some fun today working this through because, like I said, I took this stuff 10 years ago, took the test 10 years ago, yeah. and all the books on my shelf. Right. He's still working with this. He's more new. So I said, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I came up with the thing because we yeah. talked about last week. Yep. I said, you work with the validity of it. Yeah. And so then Eric calls back and, and says. panic. I, I had to. He called back. He calls back and said, it's not valid. <laughs> and I said, we know it's valid, so it's not constructed right. That's right. Okay. And so then what we were doing wrong, we were being. Yeah, we had to the fact ab- that it was a negative concept made us think that it was a negative when really it was an affirmative. Yeah, that's right. It was, exactly. it was affirming a negative concept. In other words, all humans, what we were saying is all people are not keeping the law or something like that. Yeah. But, w- but what we're affirming is all humans are in the category of those who have inability. Do you see the difference? You're, you're affirming something to be true about all humans. You're not, yeah. So it's not a negative, it's a positive. Right. Even though the concept is a It's a negative thing to have inability, but as far as our logic's concerned, it's a positive statement. Right. And the reason why we had to change it, notice premise two, if this ends up being a negative predicate, then we have to have a negative predicate down here. And we couldn't think of a way of saying it in a negative way down here. Because remember, the weaker premise rule, Right. So this had to be an affirmative predicate up here. And so instead of saying all humans cannot abide by the law, which is a negative predicate, we changed it to say all humans are those who cannot abide by the law, and then therefore the copulas are, and therefore it's an affirmative, and therefore we're valid. Let's just check real quick the validity. Shall we check it? Let's do it, guys. We're going to check the validity. Let's look at curse. We have to have three terms, right? We have cursed is our first term. That's the, the major term. And we have it up here. So there's our first term. The minor term is humans. We have that, right? And then everyone who does not abide by the law, we have the same thing here. That's our middle term. So we have three terms. Now, we have to have the middle term distributed at least once, okay? Now, notice it's distributed here because it says everyone who does not abide by the law. Is that a universal or a particular? Universal. And what's our rule? Subjects and negative predicates are distributed. So we have a distributed middle. Bingo, we're good there. Okay. Now let's look at our third rule. Anything distributed in the conclusion must be distributed in the premise. Okay. All humans, remember that's a universal subject, that's distributed, so it has to be distributed in the premise, and sure enough, it is right here. Our curse, this is a, an affirmative predicate, so that's not distributed, so I don't have to worry about that. So we're good on that rule. And the next rule is what? What's our next rule? Anybody remember? 
we have to follow the weaker premise. And that's what Bob and I were actually wrestling with. So here we have actually two affirmative predicates, right? We have an is and an are. And we also have two universals. So that means we can have a universal affirmative. So we're good there, right? Does that make sense? Does that all make sense? We, we, followed, we don't have a weak premise. They're both, all, both premises are universal affirmative. That's as strong as you get. Okay, does that make sense? So a weaker premise would be a particular or a negative. Okay, let me keep going here. Now, no conclusion follows two negative premises. Now, do we have two negative predicates? We don't. We have two affirmative, right? So we're good there. A no conclusion follows two particular premises. Do we have two particular premises? Nope. They're both actually, in fact, universal, aren't they? They're not particular. So the only one that we have to worry about then is no negative conclusion follows two affirmative premises, and we don't have that problem. So this is, in fact, good job, Bob, a valid syllogism. Yes. <laughs> and tell them, tell them what we can know, because the Bible, we know about the premises, yeah. don't we? Okay, here's the, here's the cool thing about using this sort of categorical or sentential logic based on Scripture. The cool thing for us is the Scripture is inspired by God and inerrant. So once you get your premise from the Scripture, you don't have to worry about testing it for truth. (laughs) Okay, so from philosophy, you can get a premise, and like we were doing earlier, you you can construct a valid syllogism using premises, but... If the premise comes from science or philosophy or general revelation, our statement may or may not be true. It has to be tested, and that's debatable. But for Christians who agree on the inspiration of Scripture, we can't debate against a premise that comes right from Scripture, unless you're emergent. Right. (laughs) But isn't that exciting? Yes, exciting. So this is how theological debate works. Okay. Theological debate uses this all the time. And I would take this, and you can use this logic and this scripture the way it is to fight against the doctrine of human ability. That's right. Okay? And I've used this. I've used this same logic not laid out formally like this, but I've used this in articles that I've written and published in CIC, one of which was about free will. Okay? And it's devastating to anybody who believes yeah. the doctrine of human ability. That's right. Because it's not there. Because Paul's assumption is that second one that they cannot. Because if there was somebody who could abide by all the works of the law, then he couldn't conclude that everyone under law is cursed. Right. That's right. So, yeah, what premise would they take issue with? The only way to make this not true is to take issue with the premises, and they both come from the Scriptures, and therefore they're stuck. Yeah, so they have to be stuck with a conclusion. They're stuck with a conclusion. Yeah. And I'm just having a, an email debate with somebody today that I normally wouldn't do because I've written on this, but this is somebody who's a leader yeah. person in ministry yeah. and who was taking issue with my doctrine of monergism or oh, yeah. grace alone. Yeah. And what she was doing was all kinds of logical fallacies, and it had to do with shifting categories and equivocating. Oh, equivocation. Yeah, so, there, so I just... I just sent back an email today using logic saying yeah. you're making category errors because of your equivocation. Yeah. Because I, she says, oh, yeah, I believe in monergism because God did 100% of the work to make it possible for somebody to be saved. Right there. Right I there. said, well, the Catholics believe that. Yeah. Okay. The, the issue is why some are saved and others are not saved and whether the cause of some being saved 
and others not saved is found 100% in God's work or man contributes to it. That's the debate. So I just went back and corrected her logic and her yeah, equivocation. That's good. Did she understand it then? I don't know. I haven't okay. got the email back, but I think she might be mad at me. I'm not sure. <laughs> no, she's a wonderful lady, by yeah. the way. And I have some friends that, that just don't see this and they can't for whatever reason. Sure. And I don't want to make fun yeah, of them. I, I just understand that. I understand that. But these things are valid, and That's we have right. to use it to come to sound theological conclusions Amen. because the Bible cannot lie. That's right. Now, we're going to look at another one that you and I talked about, Romans one twenty. Let me show you an example of that one. Romans one twenty. Paul writes, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, let me give you some principles. Where, now, again, I know this is tough because when you try to pull a categorical syllogism out of literature, it takes a lot of practice. But let me give, give you a few principles. And again, over time, someday you're fishing in your boat and you're not catching anything. And perhaps you have your Bible and a notepad. You say, I'm going to work on categorical syllogisms. You can do this. So here's some principles. <laughs> yeah, you're a smart man. <laughs> you're out of gas. Okay. And you can't do that. All right. Here's the first principle, I think, is this. Find the conclusion. And why do we want to find the conclusion? Because we know in the conclusion, if we find a conclusion in the literature, we already have the major and the middle term, or the minor term. Okay, that helps us out. So, for instance, you'll often find a conclusion with a therefore, hence, thus, so, so that, in conclusion, etc. Something that marks the concluding or conclusion by the author. So, in fact, we have it here so that they are without excuse. I found that. That's the conclusion. So I put that up. Okay, then what happens then, follow me here, we can find our major and minor premises. So our major premise is excuse, with the, without excuse, right, or excuse. And the minor premise would be they or all people, okay, because that's what's being talked about. And then we have to reconstruct the sentence in logical form. So here's the conclusion. It's a therefore. So all people, because that's the they, are without excuse, now, what do I have for the premises? Well, my first premise is all people who clearly see God in nature are without excuse. Now, where did I come up with all people who clearly see God in nature? Well, I got it from here. Have been clearly seen. Well, have been clearly seen by who? Well, Paul doesn't state it, but he implies it. It's all people, right? So it's all people who clearly see God in nature. And that, again, is called an enthymeme. It's something that's true, but it's not explicitly stated. It's implied in the text. Okay? So that's why I had to supply it. And therefore, again, that's an enthymeme. Okay? Use that five times. You own it. Right? That term. And then here's the second premise. All people clearly see God in nature. All right? So all people clearly see, and again, we're deriving that, again, from the text. All people are the ones who have clearly seen. Okay? So all people who clearly see God in nature are without excuse. All people clearly see God in nature, so all people are without excuse. Now, this again, I checked it. It is, in fact, a valid syllogism. And therefore, if the premises are true, the conclusion necessarily is true. Now, here's what I want to talk about with Bob. We're going to be talking about general revelation versus special revelation. All right? And what we're going to be doing in our apologetics is we're going to be using general revelation to bring the lost on board. The first thing we want to do is win the battle that God exists. Because once God exists, if we can prove that, then all we have to do, in a sense, is argue about, well, who is that God? And has he revealed himself? Okay, now, let's ask Bob, uh, let's pick your theological brain. 
what is the extent of knowledge that we can actually glean, first of all, from the general revelation? In other words, how much can we know, in fact, from general revelation? How far can we go with it? In that, your, in that's, a, that's a very good point. Carl was asking about that today because he had general revelation for his theological term. Yeah. And we were discussing the definition. What the Bible tells us here is that we can know God exists. Yeah, right? That to, from general revelation. And I told you a story today about how that actually happened in my life. Yeah, yeah very powerful. Yeah, so I, I was in organic mm-hmm. chemistry, and I saw evidence from the intricacies of the chemicals in the human body yeah. that there had to be a God. Wow. So you can know that. Now it's just, it says we can know his attributes. Now, I would say his invisible attributes. What can we know about attributes from general revelation? Well, for one thing, we know that there is a God and that something has to come Cannot come from nothing, so God created what does exist. Oh, yeah. So we can see that in general revelation. And I think we can see that God is personal. Mm. Why? Because humans are personal, and the personal doesn't come forth from the impersonal. Right, right. So God is a person. We can see that from general revelation. And we can also see certain things about his omnipotence and what have you, because when we see the vastness of the universe, we can see the... What are those things called, those constants that are, that are necessary, that if they were different, life could not exist yeah. on planet Earth? Yeah, the anthropic principles. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And so we can see a lot of things that would say there's a God, that he's a powerful God, he's an intelligent God, he's a personal God. That's what Paul's saying. That's right. Okay, but the real question becomes, has he spoken? Yeah. Are we yeah. limited to only those things that would make us theists, or can we know more? That's where we're that, going. <laughs> all right. Now that brings up another categorical syllogism. All right. <laughs> so that's out of uh, Hebrews. Let me mention one thing. Do we have time? <laughs> that's a good segue. This is like a radio show, Bob. Yeah, Very good. All right. That's professional. One item. We're going to be talking about different types of apologetics. And there's three basic types. There's presuppositional, evidential, and classical apologetics. We're going to be using the classical apologetic model. Now, what is, what's the difference? The primary difference is in the extent or the usage of general revelation. So, for instance, the classical apologists that we're going to follow used general revelation to first prove the existence of God. Okay? Now, the presuppositionalists, they don't use that. Okay? What they believe is that you have to have the starting point of actually first believing in Jesus. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, we're going to see it in informal fallacies. It's begging the question. So, in other words, friends, think about this. We're actually trying to prove the existence of God to somebody and help them uh, trust in Jesus Christ, right? Knowing all the while that when we proclaim the gospel, it's God working through them. That doesn't, right? However, God uses means. He uses arguments, okay? So what, what we do is we start with these arguments for the existence of God, which are valid based on general revelation, and then the second question is, if there is a God, it's sort of like Schaefer's book, he is there and he's now silent. We know there is a God. Has he spoken yes. and revealed more about himself in detail through speech? Right. Okay, so the presuppositionalist just starts with God, either with Jesus or with just the Bible. Right. They'll just say, okay, just start with this. 
don't bother with all that other. Right. And yet, and that's the very point we're trying to prove because the people don't yeah, believe that. Right. So we can't start with a starting point that they already deny. That's the problem. Yeah. But there's some very brilliant Christians who have been presuppositionalists like this Cornelius Van Til yep. and so on. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's hit that. Let's hit another categorical syllogism from the scriptures. Here's one from Hebrews 1, 4 through 5. And it says this, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Talking about Christ, obviously. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And of course, that quote is from uh, Psalm 2. So let's put up the syllogism here. Premise 1, whoever is called son of God is better than angels. Right? Okay. So where do we get that? Well, he has inherited a more excellent name. Right now, premise two, this is an enthymeme. Christ is called Son of God. It says, you are my son. Well, of course, implied there is Christ. Who is called my son? Well, it's Christ. So Christ is called Son of God. And here's the conclusion. Christ is better than angels. Now, there's a powerful, this is actually a powerful apologetic towards the Jehovah Witnesses. Okay, we can use this syllogism derived from Hebrews 1, 4 through 5, because the Jehovah Witnesses are those who claim Jesus is actually Michael the Archangel, right? So, for instance, in Jude 9, it says this. Notice the logic here. But Michael the Archangel, when he disputed with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So here we have Michael the Archangel. He doesn't want to rebuke or put judgment upon the devil. But notice, Jesus does. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, then Jesus, remember during the temptation, he says, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall serve the Lord your God only, and him only shall you serve and worship. Okay? So the point is, is here we have Jesus rebuking him, whereas Michael the archangel did not. All right? So we have a distinction here between the angels and Christ who is on top of the angels. All right? Now, with that, though, Hebrews 1 is important because it also tells us that God is in fact spoken. So what are some logical implications of that? Well, logical implications of God having spoken is that knowing that God is, knowing that God's attributes are true, and God spoke and God cannot lie, then everything God has said is true. (laughs) Everything God has said is binding on us. And that we can take from what God has said understand the premise there and come to valid implications. Okay, and that's what the preacher is supposed to do. That's what prophecy is. Implications and applications are logically connected to the text. Okay? And we use logic to test the validity of preaching. We use logic to test the validity of implications and applications. And that's what uh, we have to be able to do if we're going to have discernment. That's right. God spoke. Here's what he said. Everything that he said can serve as a premise. Right. No. And we don't have to worry about testing it for truth because God cannot lie, right? That's right. That's right. Amen. So the emergence today and the postmoderns, they may agree with us, yes, God has spoken, but what are they doing? They're taking the legs out from underneath us by saying, we can't know what he says. Right. Yeah. So what they're doing is taking away the ability to come up with valid implications and applications that are binding. That's right. And so taking away binding truth 
is derived from Scripture, tied to it by logic, they have to replace that with something else. And, and I have this, this new book will have a whole chapter where I just use logic. Okay, good. I think I sent that yep, one Yep, I, I have that one. Yep. Okay, so I just use logic and, on the emergent church and <laughs> on their arguments. But what they do is they take away the logical connection so you can't have anything binding on you because you can't do that. That's right. And you're only left with an experience. That's right. Yeah. So you fill in experiences, yeah. smells and bells and incense and lights and sounds and silence and whatever the experience, the, the labyrinth, it's always going to be an experience because yeah. you can't do the binding anymore. Yeah. Now, what I try to prove in my book is that logic is not culturally relative. Logic is not something that is only true of certain people. It's universal. It's universal, and here's how I would claim logic is universal. It is necessary to survive. Now, my wife and I, she's not here because she's not feeling good. She, not because of her statement last week. She'll be back. Okay. <laughs> now, she was going to come, but she just got really sick. Now, we had an interesting discussion. She says to me, well, I'm, not, I'm just not logical. I says, yes, you are logical. The real issue is whether you can analyze formally what that looks like. Right. She it's, uses it all the time. She uses it all the time. She held down a job for years doing uh, complex work with books yeah. and, and processes that will work. Uh, every time you prepare food, you're using logic. Right, right. You are, you are able to read instructions and derive from them a valid action that's logically connected to the instruction. You're actually using logic. And when you discern the difference between food and poison, as I said last week, yeah. you just use the law of non-contradiction. That's right. <laughs> a is not non-A the same way in the same relationship. Postmoderns still drive on the right side of the road, don't exactly. they? Exactly. Yeah. Did I tell them about the postmodern mushroom hunt? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> This is show, this just illustrates the need for logic, so we don't want you to give up. If the formal stuff just seems too much, you're still logical, yeah, and you're right. still using it. You use it every single day of your life. Now, here's the illustration of the need for logic. Here's the deal. We're going to have a mushroom hunt, all right? But we want to be open-minded about how we do this. So we're going to have two groups, all right? We're going to have the postmodern group. And then we're going to have the Enlightenment Rationalist group. Okay? Now, the postmodern mushroom hunters are going to have an experience. They're not going to use logic. They're not going to use categories. They're not going to use non-contradiction or any of these things. They're going to just gather and meditate about mushrooms until they feel good about it. And they feel the spirit moving them. All right? Now... The Enlightenment rationalists are going to gather in a different group, and they're going to bring in a mushroom expert who's going to explain the characteristics of edible mushrooms and how they can be identified using categories and non-contradiction and how they can be identified and how one can successfully find those mushrooms and not die from eating them or have some wild trip. <laughs> okay, so... Then we invite everybody to decide what group they want to join, and then after our experience, we go out and hunt mushrooms. Yeah. How many do you think would join the postmodern group? <laughs> yeah. Zero. They would never, ever do that because 
they would not trust their life to the possibility of dying by just basing everything on subjectivism and rejecting logic and rationality. So Schaefer argues argues this in his books. And so our, our claim is that rationality and logic in human beings are there by God's act of creation when he created us in his image. And God, in fact, even for Adam and Eve to obey the very first law that God gave required logical deduction from premises. Is not eating of the tree the same as eating of it in the same time? Okay, not contradiction. Okay. For those of us that might want to stumble through this thing and yeah. got blocked on a couple and got lost with a really fast speaker, okay. you know, who's, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, spinning a little faster than I'm listening. Sure. What are we going to do to really grasp what the key things are that we missed on the first round solving these problems? Yeah. I think the answer is distribution on distribution. Yeah, it is. Distribution how do we get a hold key. of that? Yeah, how would I, how would I would get a hold of that is, remember your rule, talking about distribution, universal subjects and negative predicates are distributed, right? So we have that rule. Then what I would do is I have the, does everybody have the homework? You're going to have homework. And what I would do is I would go through those examples and determine if they're valid or invalid. I want to put the answers. I can get them to Jesse and maybe get them online. Could I do that or should I? Yeah, she could put it on or, next week's material. Or next week's material? Week. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So will that help? And then the other thing, always remember the difference between validity and soundness. Remember, you're not determining whether the proposition is true. All you care about it is whether these syllogisms are valid. So don't worry about if I agree or not. If you, if you agree or don't agree with a proposition, leave that all aside. You're just care, all you care about if it's valid, if it's in good form. Okay. And then just remember your rules. Go through the seven and do it like a checklist, just like a pilot. Bing, 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 Bing. All seven, and go through them, and you'll you'll get this down. Okay. And next week we're going on. But you'll see some similarities, and we'll draw some similarities between hypothetical syllogisms and categorical ones, okay? And these are going to be a lot more fun. They're very easy, actually. Okay, I'm sorry. Could you give us an idea of what intuitively distributed means? Because it's like this concept, I have no idea what that means. Yeah. It's just, oh, here's a rule. Let, well, let's, you intuitively, know what, I think, what? That's a good question. I think Bob kind of enlightened me to an idea. I think maybe a good way of explaining distribution actually comes from a hypothetical syllogism. And if a dog, then a mammal, okay? And we're going to find out with hypothetical syllogisms that a fallacy is either denying the antecedent, which is the if part, or affirming the consequent, okay? So distribution, let's say I said if a dog, then a mammal, okay? Okay, but if I actually end up um, affirming, affirming a consequent, I'm actually doing something called non-distribution. Okay, so what was my example? If a dog, then a mammal. If I affirm the consequence, saying, "Okay, a mammal," then therefore a dog. Not necessarily. See, it's not distributed because yes, a mammal, but but not necessarily a dog because it could be a raccoon or it could be a cat. Right. You see. And so that's, so that's maybe, a, does that help with distribution? About the predicate as it applies to the subject. Exactly. And the subject as it applies to the predicate. Right. So even though that's a fallacy, backwards. it's the same thing as distribution. See, we have to, anytime we're talking about distribution, we're talking about talking about a whole class of something. Unless the whole class is being referred to, what's being stated about it might not apply. Right. Okay. It's undistributed. Yeah, let me tell you a little secret about that. Yeah. Ever since I learned all this stuff in seminary, 
Mm -hmm. I take almost every one of these things, convert them to a hypothetical syllogism, so much easier. and then just do it that way, and then I don't even worry about these seven rules. I'm sorry. <laughs> so everything you've done you is Because then you only need to know two rules. Yeah. Two rules. Don't affirm yep. the consequent, and don't deny the antecedent. But, but we didn't want to rip you guys off from the experience of categorical systems. So we... We would like you guys to be well-rounded logicians, and we just wanted to give you guys a primer, so that's why we went through it. So, therefore, you, if you ever see one of these, you'll know you've seen it, you can recognize it, and you'll be able to use it, too. So, Thank you, and it, Yeah, Eric. thank you, Bob. <laughs> yeah, thanks, you guys. It'll be a lot easier next week. Okay. Yep. The fun, from now on, all fun. All yeah, fun. all fun, yeah. <laughs>